Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome all of you to the service this morning on this nice, bright, sunshiny, but cool morning. Um, Call your attention to the pew pads, which is basically you can mark down the fact that you're here. We like to know that you're here. And those are found in the aisle side of your seats. I hope you'll pass it down. Also, I would like to invite all of you to the coffee hour, which is immediately following, so that you can either meet new friends or enjoy the company of many of your friends. Um, I've been asked to announce that the 6th and 7th graders would please stay in the service this morning. Um, They are not to leave during Mouse Report or after Mass Report. And I have three people who like uh, to make announcements, but first I'd like to introduce um, one of confirmation students who is following me this morning as elder and finding out what it takes to basically set up for church. And there's another um, mentee also following the deacon this morning. So this is Callie McLean. Callie McLean, and I'm happy to have her helping me out this morning. So first I would like to um, ask Jack Holsworth to come up. You really appreciate these little railings when you come up here. (laughs) You don't have them over at the Linehan Chapel in Nazareth, and it could be kind of disastrous. So far, it hasn't been. (laughs) Well, good early fall morning to all of you. I call your attention to our second Optimist Dinner Meeting, which will be next Friday, the 12th. Nina Kalin, who has enthralled us several times before, We'll be reviewing the best-selling book, now also a movie, The Monuments Men, Allied Heroes, Nazi Thieves, and the Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. Many of you are familiar with these, but I'll let this keep you away. Focusing on the period between D-Day and V-E Day, the book follows several Monuments Men on their impossible mission to save the world's greatest art from the Nazis. A group of American and British museum directors, curators, artists, historians, and others risked their lives scouring Europe to prevent the destruction of thousands of years of culture in the form of the world's finest art treasures and kept them out of Hitler's degenerate grasp. Come and hear the incredible story of those who made this possible and to enhance our culture as we know it today. Come prepared to have an intellectual treat, a culinary treat in the form of a delicious catered pasta dinner, which features lasagna, Indian bread, garden salad, dessert and coffee, all for 10 bucks. Along with that, you get fellowship, which is difficult to measure. 
So we hope you all turn out. Tickets will be available in the fellowship hall after church and in the office. I'm walking out with the tickets in the cash box, but they're not available until I get to the fellowship hall. Thank you. Next is Dan Trainer. Um, we do a supper club a couple times a year where we teach a meal, and tonight is our Oktoberfest, so it's a German dinner at 5 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall, and we'll be making Wiener Schnitzel and Spatzel. So if anyone would like to come by for a dinner, 5 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall for Oktoberfest. Thanks, Dan. Sounds like fun. Uh, Lee Fox and her... Um, group on mission. Good morning. This morning, uh, it, today is World Communion Sunday. On this day, each year, uh, we collect also the Peacemaking Offering, which is a Presbyterian Church USA offering. Our portion of the offering is given to the Judicial Process Commission, and I have two people here with me who can tell us a little bit more about the Judicial Process Commission here in Rochester on Norton Street. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Pam Bowler. Um, I'm part of the Judicial Process. I'm a mentor. I've been involved with it for um, one year. And um, I was given the assignment to work with um, Shelly Waltz, who will come and speak to you in just a minute. I just want to read to you the um, mission statement. And it says, the Judicial Process Commission is a grassroots nonprofit organization that works to create a just, nonviolent community. We support the rights of all people affected by the criminal justice system and promote changes to the system that help them achieve their fullest potential. And we do this by providing support service, educating the public, and advocating for systematic change. Um, the judicial process has been um, very great for me in terms of being a um, mentor. I retired in December, and I decided that I wanted to do something that supported women's ministry, and this is how I became involved in the um, JPC program. We're always looking for um, volunteers. It's a two-day training, so you can feel free to call the um, judicial process and sign up for the training. We thank you for all your support. Good morning, my name is Shelley Waltz. Um, I'm a client of JPC. Um, I've been a member since February. I got involved in them when I was incarcerated. Um, JPC is a great support for me. I have a wonderful mentor, Pam. Um, JPC, they help with everything from clothes and personal items. Um, they give you a mentor. We get bus passes. They help you with your legal and criminal records. They can get some things taken off your record if you need to help you with your license and things like that. Um, we, there's also a new journey program for JPC. It's all women with children. We meet twice a month in, on Norton Street. Um, we talk if anybody needs anything, and all the women get together and see how we're doing and getting back in the community from after being incarcerated. So... Thank you. 
Burris, the preload. The heavens are telling the glory of God. All creation speaks volumes of God's handiwork. Without a word being spoken, all creation bears witness to the goodness of the Lord. So the of the Lord. In the words of our mouths and the 
Let us worship God. up and do yourself a favor. Keep that hymnal space because you're going to want page 341 in just a moment. Hold your hymnals open. We've just prayed a beautiful prayer of the day as we sang it together and now we have our call to confession. God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ and the mission of reconciliation to which he has called his church are the heart of the gospel in any age. Our generation stands in peculiar need of reconciliation in Christ. We confess our need, confident in God's forgiving grace. Together, God of compassion and mercy, we are your wounded and wounding children. 
We bring our wounded selves, our divided society, and our broken world, seeking your healing and transforming grace. It is easy for us to point the finger at others, yet we know that we all need your forgiveness. So we lift into your presence today not only the victims of conflicts, but also those we have called enemies. Break down the walls of hatred, distrust, and bitterness, and open a way for us to reach one another in truth and love. Enable us to build a society where all can belong, to share our gifts in mutual respect, and to seek for the new future which you offer us through Jesus the Christ. Amen. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Jesus Christ is God with humankind. He is the the eternal son of the Father who became human and lived among us to fulfill the work of reconciliation. He is present in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue and complete his mission. Therefore, the church calls all people to be reconciled to God and to one another. The peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Greet one another.
seated, friends. Our gospel lesson for today is taken from Matthew 5. You'll recognize this as being part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching and preaching. He has just finished with the Beatitudes and he goes on to say, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Invite children to join me up here on the stairs. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, you're going to find out what's in there. Actually, I have one of these small packages open. And I am going to take this out. Yeah. This is a light. And, you know, we just read about how you are the light of the world, right? Jesus was speaking that. And so if I pull this piece out, then twist this just a little, I have a light. And It's your favorite color. This is going to turn green. Then it turns red. And then it kind of turns blue. So it kind of shifts colors and then it goes back to green again. And I can take this light and I can put it on myself like this. So I can wear it. Now, something else, another place I could wear this light. I could take it and put it on my ear like this. And I could wear it on my ear like that. How would that be? Pretty good? Oh, yeah, pretty cool. But, or, or I could just keep it down here and, and put it on like this. Well, we read that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So what we want to do is we would like to make this church a brighter place. And one month from now, on the last first Sunday of November, we hope that everyone who wants to make the world a brighter place through the life of this congregation will be bringing their commitment cards for 2015, and everybody in the families that do that are going to get lights for everybody in the family. And we hope that we can light up the whole church. But we thought that today, since we're going to talk about this whole period of light, that we should begin by having some reminders to people that they are to be the light of the world. And so, I have one for each of you. Yeah. You need two, Addy? Well, well, there's a little tricky. So your sister, oh yeah. See that? Yeah. Hey, Wes. I have one. 
Do you need, you need only, you, who else are you going to get the other one for, Aaron? Okay. There's Rose. And you need one? Over there, and they need one. So now you all have lights, and you'll be able to wear these. I, I didn't take them out of the bag, and I want you to tell you why. I thought if there were really small people here, I don't want these to get near people's mouths, right? Because they don't want anybody to swallow lights. That would be kind of interesting. You would light up on the inside. It would be easier for doctors to find that on your inside if you did that, probably. But I think that would be best if we just wear these on the outside. So I thought I would wear mine. And it would be a reminder that we are encouraged to be light. And if anybody asks you, where did you get your light? You say, we got the lights at church. Right? How do you turn them off? How do you turn them off? Oh, well, you pull out the little piece of paper, and they might come on then. If you turn them the same way the hands go around the clock, they turn on. If you turn just back the other way, it goes off. And that saves the battery a little bit. You just twist it like a clock does that way, and then you twist it back that way, and it goes up. And that saves the battery a little bit. This is kind of a cool thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, light up the church today. When I go over to Fellowship Hall looking for coffee and donuts after worship today, I'm going to look for all of you have your lights on. Good plan? Yeah. Good plan. Well, have a great time in Sunday school today. That'd be great. Here's what doesn't work. Here, here's this one. The Old Testament passage I'm about to read for us is um, a lectionary passage. And there will be churches all over the world that will read this passage today. It comes up for us to read about once every three years, but I will tell you that if I had my way, I would encourage us to at least pause and read this passage once a year. It's a passage that our world needs. Now, this is... God's basic commands. The first four of these are really kind of commands that really are particular to us in our Christian faith and our Jewish friends and their Jewish heritage. But then the others are basic commands and rules for living. And if we were to abide by these, we would cut down on world problems and personal problems immensely. I shall read all of this section of Exodus 20. Then God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid. And they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will surely die. And Moses said, Do not be afraid. For God has come only to test you and put the fear of him upon you, so that you do not sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
continue our emphasis in this fall preaching series on the works of Barnabas. And we turn to the history of the early church as found in the book of Acts. We find ourselves in chapter 11, and the young church is making its way, but also encountering setbacks like the martyrdom of Stephen. And here we follow on that action. I invite you to hear God's word to each and every one of us. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus and to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and by Saul. The encouraging word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are all kinds of theories about how to motivate people. We sometimes do it through guilt. Parents are very good about using guilt to motivate their children. We sometimes do it through fear. And that's why you use a big voice when you're going to read the Ten Commandments. We sometimes do it through shame. But this was not the method used by Jesus. Jesus chose to motivate people through positive messages of hope and encouragement. I mean, just consider the reading this morning. Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. I mean, can you imagine this? Here is a motley crew of farmers and fishermen and tax collectors and housewives, and they're living in a tiny remote village in an obscure part of the world, and Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world. Talk about a statement of faith. It is a crazy idea. Light of the world, that bunch... It sounds absurd to us, and it would have sounded absurd to the people who heard it. Only Jesus could have seen that through this gaggle of folks, God would change the world. At that time, probably it sounded like just so much idle chatter. 
You are the light of the world, he said, and so they were. Now, if you want to consider something even more absurd and silly, you are the light of the world. You. 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 In February this year, we gave some attention to the nature of salt, and Jesus saying, you're the salt of the earth. At that time, we considered how salt makes things taste better, boys up that which is heavy, is valuable as a commodity, helps to heal and disinfect. We looked at those principles, considering that Jesus was actually not being critical, but paying these disciples a compliment. But today, I'd like to suggest that he not only pays a compliment, he is setting the direction for purposeful living and mission. Once there was a man who wanted to determine which of his two children was more worthy of inheriting his property. And so he gave each of them a coin worth a lot of value. And he said, buy something with this coin that will fill the house. Well, the first tried to think of something he could buy with a coin that would fill his father's wishes. He decided on a large load of straw. It was the most of anything he could buy with that amount of money. He returned home and found that he didn't have quite enough straw to cover the whole floor of the house. Second child chose a wiser course. He spent his coin on candles. And as he lighted each candle, their light filled the house. And to that child he said, to you I give my business. You have shown wisdom. There is not enough darkness in the entire world, writes Robert Alden, to put out the light of even one candle. That's true. It's no wonder that the imagery of light is important to our faith. Jesus says to us this morning that we are the light of the world. You sink your teeth into that and savor it a bit. You and I, the light of the world. What could this mean? Well, I have some possibilities to suggest. It means, first of all, that we have a responsibility for the world. Makes sense, doesn't it? We are the light of the world. Light does not exist for its own glory, but to brighten up that which surrounds it. I read recently about one of the most remarkable young men who has ever lived. He was a young man who had been left blind in both eyes by a childhood accident. In 19th century France, when this young man lived, blind children had little help and fewer hopes. But then a very kind priest, Father Jacques Poulet, took an interest in the boy. He was just amazed at this young man's intelligence, his eagerness to learn, and with his parents' permission, 
Father Poulet enrolled this young man in the Royal Institute of Blind Youth in Paris. Thrust into this new and frightening environment, the boy was lonely, he became depressed, and in time he found friendship and encouragement with some of the other young men that he met there. But he was frustrated by the Institute's lack of books in raised print. What the French did at that time, and we did in the English world as well, we would take print uh, with our normal letters and raise them, and then you were expected to feel the raised letters in print. And so he set out at the age of 12 to invent his own system. After three years, he perfected his method, but he encountered indifference and hostility when he tried to convince the world that his system was better for those who were blind. Even with the support of the Institute's director, he was told again and again he was just too young to have created such an alphabet for the blind. Years passed. Young man grew older. He was made a teacher of the Institute and became one of the world's greatest organists. His health was frail. It was not until he lay in bed dying of tuberculosis that he heard that first steps were then being taken to popularize his system. He did not live to witness it. But Louis Braille and his alphabet became a universal reading method for the blind. His courage... His hunger for knowledge enabled him to triumph over disability and disease and to become a light for future generations, even for those who could not see. It is wonderful when someone sets out to make the world a brighter place. Some of you can remember when the pulpits of this nation sounded with the call for young men and women to go out as missionaries to be light to a world of darkness. We don't sound that trumpet like we once did. We just have not been asking people to sacrifice what they have and who they are for the good of humanity, and that's sad. We are to be the light of the world. We have a responsibility for the world. And so if you've never heard it before, I call you to ministry in the world. And if God doesn't speak to you through your conscience, at least you have heard a voice speak to you. We have something that the world desperately needs. Jesus was saying this when he said that we are to be the light. We have something that the world cannot find anywhere else. Mother Teresa was speaking to people who had come to meet her from all over the world. And among the groups to which she spoke was one of the religious sisters, uh, one of the convents here in North America. And after 
her talk, she was asked if anybody had any questions. And one woman raised her hand. She said, yes, I have one. She said, as you know, most of the orders represented here have been losing members. It seems that more and more women are leaving all the time, and yet your order is attracting thousands and thousands. Mother Teresa, what is it that you do? And without hesitating, Mother Teresa answered this way. She said, I give them Jesus. Yes, Mother Teresa, we know. Um, but take habits, for example. Uh, do your women object to wearing habits uh, and the rules of the order? How do you deal with that? I give them Jesus. Uh, Reverend Mother, yes, we know. Uh, but can you be more specific? I give them Jesus. Mother, we're all aware of your fine work. I want to know something. I give them Jesus. I give them Jesus. There is nothing else. What do we have that the world can't find anywhere else? All we have is the person of Christ. In our pluralistic world, there are people with many religious backgrounds who call our country their home, and we can learn things from our neighbors. If someone should ask you, though, what is distinctive about Christianity, let me suggest you do as Mother Teresa suggested, and you give them Jesus. And if you don't know enough about Jesus, then it would be good to learn a little bit more about Jesus. The greatest heresy current today is that all religions are the same. I go to cocktail parties, meet people in the community, and they'll inevitably come and say, hey, Reverend, don't you think we're all going to the same place and we all kind of believe in the same stuff? And I just look at them and I said, absolutely not. That changes conversation. <laughs> Certainly, all of the world's religions have something worthwhile to offer. And we need to be respectful of others. You can find help in most all of them. But what you can't find is the story of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan or the rich fool. There is no higher order of life than that which Jesus taught. None. Can I make it any plainer? Christianity as an institution might not be too compelling. But if you understand the life and teachings of Jesus, Jesus has no peer. Literally. We have a responsibility for the world. We have something that the world can't find anywhere else. And this reminder... We are not the source of our light. We are to be but reflections 
of a much greater source. There is one who has touched our lives and given us the power and the authority to touch others. Robert Fulgham is an American author primarily of short essays, and he came to prominence when his first essay collection was published in 1986. Once I give you the title, you're going to say, ah, yes, I remember that. It was entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. He published those essays. It stayed at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for two years. He wrote things like, and I hope I can quote him and remember, um, the grass is not, in fact, always greener on the other side of the fence. Fences have nothing to do with it. The grass is greenest where it is watered. When crossing over fences, carry water with you and tend to the grass wherever you may be. That's the kind of thing that he wrote. This is the Robert Fulgham, who once attended a seminar on a Greek culture on the island of Crete. This was led by a philosopher, teacher, and politician, Alexander Papadouros. At the end of the two-week session, led by scholars and experts and intellectuals, Papadouros himself closed the last meeting by asking the same question that Mother Teresa asked. Are there any questions? There was silence. Then Robert Fulgham asked, Dr. Papadouros, what is the meaning of life? People kind of twittered in laughter. and They wanted to go home. They didn't want to listen to something else. Papadouros raised his hand and there was silence. He looked at Fulgham and he said, I will answer your question. Then he took out his wallet. He retrieved a mirror about the size of a quarter. And he told how as a small boy he had found a fragment of a mirror on the road where a German army motorcycle had been wrecked. And the mirror became a new toy. He was fascinated by its ability to reflect light into the darkest places, and Papadouros said, As I grew older, I learned that reflecting light is not just a child's game. It is a metaphor what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light, I am not the source of light, but that I can reflect light. The truth. Light. Understanding, knowledge, is always there. But it will shine into the darkest places only when it is reflected. I have come to understand this as the meaning of life. And then with that statement, Papadouros took his mirror and held it out to a window where light was streaming and focused the light so that it was reflected and shined on each person present. Scientists and astronomers tell us that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. This is very hard for me to imagine. So perhaps the way in which I have learned about it might help you. Um, Think of it this way. Some of the starlight 
shining in your window as a star probably left that star sometime about the point when Shakespeare was writing his plays. That light has been traveling all that time to reach you. The work of the first disciples still influences you. Centuries ago, men and women were commissioned to make disciples of all nations. And although they've been dead for almost 2,000 years, the effect of their work has traveled through history and touched us. It has been felt in our lives today. Carrie read for us this passage about Barnabas from the book of Acts. You know what was happening at that time? Saul, who was later named Paul, was a one-man Isis. He felt commissioned by the temple priesthood to go out and kill all of those who were known as followers of the way. He held the coats for the men who stood around Stephen and stoned him to death. Then Saul has a very unusual experience with blinding light. You can imagine what would have happened if this man who was known for killing people throughout the world were to come and sit in our congregation. Would you like to hear what he has to say? Not many would. So who did they send to get him in Tarsus, his home, but Barnabas? Barnabas goes and brings Saul to the church in Antioch where he is introduced by Barnabas to the congregation there. He stays there for a year. Barnabas teaches. Uh, people change their lives. Barnabas is the one to whom money is given to take to the saints down in Jerusalem who are now dying of famine. He is behind the scenes being a light. And the church in Antioch? The church in Antioch became the largest church in the known world at the time, and Antioch, Syria, became the largest Christian city in the world. And now people try to snuff it out, right? Eric Butterworth uh, tells about a college professor who had his sociology class go into the Baltimore slums and get case histories, and then they went up to Philadelphia and got more. And they had 200 young boys in their case histories, and the students were asked to write an evaluation of each boy's future. And these students wrote this about the boys. He doesn't have a chance. Twenty-five years later, a second sociology professor comes across the first study. He had his students follow up on the project to see what had happened with the boys. With the exception of 20 boys who had moved away or died, the students learned that 176 of the remaining 180 had achieved extraordinarily successful lives as inventors, businessmen, scientists, workmen, physicians, attorneys. 
The professor was astounded. He decided to pursue the matter further, and fortunately, all the men were in the area, and he was able to ask this question of each. How do you account for your success? In each case, the reply came this way. Well, there was this teacher The teacher was still alive. So he sought her out and asked the elderly but still alert woman what magic formula had she used to pull these boys out of the slums into such a successful achievement. He showed them uh, this list of the names to this woman. And her eyes sparkled and her lips broke into a smile. And then she said, it's really very simple. I love those boys. Their teacher loved them. Once, there was a teacher who loved his students. He saw possibilities in them that no one else saw. They didn't even see it in themselves. To them, he said, you are the light of the world. And so they became. The love they received from him, they passed on to others. Today, there are very few places where this light has not been received, that it does not shine. Even in the face of fierce persecution, sometimes it's only a flicker but its weakness will overcome any power to crucify and hurt. We are the light of the world. There are people in this world who are lost in darkness and they're looking for light, any light. How about yours? Does it shine? Could they find their way because of you? You and I are the light of the world. We have a responsibility for the world. We have what the world desperately needs. We are not the source of the light, but merely reflectors of the true light of Christ. And if you think so too, there's a prayer we can use today in our bulletin. God of wisdom, we trust that you are active in this world and in ultimate control of it. So many people have abused your creation and the people on this planet. Discord and disharmony have been the result. However, we believe that we are called to be salt, to buoy one another up, to give value to others, and to heal the wounds left by war and nasty words. We also see that your love spread abroad at such high cost in Christ Jesus, is still in process of drawing all creation back to yourself. Use us and this sacrificial offering we make for your reclaiming mission, for peace and for hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
In the silence of the morning, as the new day dawned around the world, God's people began to gather for worship amid the sounds of drums and pipes, strings or organs. And now we too join in this worldwide chorus of those who call upon the name of the Lord. On this World Communion Sunday, we remember especially that the scriptures are filled as people will come from east and west and from north and south to sit at the table in the kingdom of God. So come, not because you must, but because we may. Come not because we're strong, but because we seek God's strength. All those who trust in Jesus are invited to come and join in this feast that God has prepared. Among friends gathered around a table, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Later, after they had eaten, he took a cup of wine and said, This cup is God's new relationship made possible by my life and death. Whenever you drink it, do it remembering me. So now, following Jesus' example, we take this bread and wine, For in them he has promised to be with us, making us whole, making us one. And in celebration of God's goodness, let us give thanks. And since this is World Communion Sunday, we have a liturgy to take part. O living God, for your blessing and creation, for your image deep within us, for your life in all its fullness, we give thanks. O Jesus, our brother, for your coming to earth, calling of us as your friends, for your sharing of our life and death. We give you thanks. O Spirit of grace and truth, for revealing yourself in community, healing us in our brokenness, and inspiring us with courage to share. O Trinity of love, for the promise of a spreading tree giving shade and protection, 
for the vision of a body in which each part works for the health of the whole, for the invitation to a feast where the despised will be guests of honor. We give you thanks. We model ourselves after the behavior of our Lord and Savior, who on the night of his rest took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks to God, he broke it. And he then gave it to each and every one of his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so in obedience and gratitude, we do. And because this is World Communion Sunday, if you are able and comfortable, I invite you to hold your bread as it is lovingly given to you by our elders and deacons today. And we will partake of it symbolically as those around the world are doing so today together.
Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God, and I invite you to imagine with me for just a moment. Although it's several hours ahead of us, Jeanette Henderson in Scotland has done the same thing today. Bo Keller, your nephew in Iraq, has done the same thing today. The church in Antioch in Syria, those brave people, are doing the same thing today. In a very similar way, after supper, our Lord took the cup as I do, ministering in his name. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. Behold, the cup of salvation poured out for you. Drink ye all of it.
poured out for you. At the early service today, there were a number of Grove City College graduates. It was a sad day yesterday. Grove City lost 35 to nothing to Waynesburg, (laughs) another Presbyterian-related college. It was their homecoming. Their football team needs prayer. We have a reason to rejoice with prayers today, and it's the 90th birthday of Georgia Trolley. We have flowers up here, and that's wonderful. But there are other concerns we have for prayer. We've been asked to really pray, and people have written to us about it, to pray for world leadership. We need wisdom that so much of our world seems to lack at the moment. And uh, we have world with small wars breaking out everywhere where people, some people are convinced that hatred and killing is a way to control others. We want to pray and remember in prayer family of Kay Wiesenbeck. She passed away this week and her funeral will be here at 10 o'clock on the 15th of November. We've been asked to pray for Lydia Metlock and her family. Lydia is a young woman, a mom, and she's had a massive heart attack and is in critical condition. Let us bring our prayers to Almighty God. God of justice and peace, you stand with those who are poor. Now in prayer spoken and unspoken, we call upon you for those who suffer the injustice of violence and want. We call upon you for those who carry heavy burdens. We call upon you for those we love and those who love us. Gracious God, you have made us one with all your people in heaven and on earth. You have fed us with the bread of life and renewed us for our service. So God of peace, may this meal shared in the spirit with your son Jesus strengthen us, your people.